if you would take your Bibles and join me. We're not doing the Christmas story as a message this morning, but we're wrapping up a series that we've been doing the last few weeks. Join me in 2 Kings. 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 13, as we continue on, actually, as we wrap up the stories that we've been talking about pre-Christ's arrival, and that is some of the prophets that he sent of old to minister, especially Elijah and Elisha. I want to thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for some of you who are tuning in right now and joining us via the internet. And we hope that what we're doing this morning will be helpful to you in your walk with the Lord. We're talking about a story of two men that we've been looking at their background for the last few weeks. The prophet Elijah, who is then succeeded by the prophet Elisha, and how they made a tremendous impact. Speaking of impact... I was reading the story again this past week, and I think I shared with you a number of months ago about a fellow by the name of Joshua Abram Norton, who had gone to San Francisco in 1849, the year of the 49ers, that he went there, but he had already amassed a huge fortune. And he had come to San Francisco very wealthy and was a business a philanthropist getting involved with a lot of entrepreneurship and investing monies. And he continued his profit-making schemes up until about 1853. It was then that all of a sudden he speculated in wild rice and lost everything. He not only lost all of his money, but he lost his mind at that point. All of a sudden became unstable and he started dreaming and thinking of himself as a totally different character. In fact, what he did is he went to the local newspapers and he told them that he was now the emperor of America and the protector of Mexico. And he claimed that the entire United States was part of his property and that he was the king, he was the emperor of that region. The newspapers thought it was kind of humorous. They liked him as a businessman. And so because of the friendship, they ran the story. It became front page news. And over the next few years, this man became a celebrity in San Francisco. A poor man who rode around in his chariot on his bicycle, who would visit the different police and go around and they would salute him. They even put in the Senate, uh, in the uh, state legislature's quarters where they meet, they put a chair with his title on it. So he could come in at any time time and sit there. And so the public as a whole, basically, they went along with this kind of this celebrity status of his without any authority, and they allowed him to print money. The money was worthless, but it became a tourist attraction in the area of San Francisco, and people who would come would buy his money to be able to have it with his picture because he was this person of notoriety. In fact, he was allowed, and he went to businesses on a regular basis. About once a year, he'd visit all the businesses in San Francisco and charge them a $1 tax. Most of them would pay him so as to just go along with this. And then something happened in 1880, January 27th. He suddenly died unexpectedly. And so people got together. He didn't have hardly anything. So the different businesses and people who had profited from some of his celebrity status, they got together and they bought bought the casket. They bought the uh, funeral plot. They got it all together. And when they announced that they were doing this this service for the emperor of America, 10,000 people lined the streets that day as his casket went by. Here's it was, this man who was just a make-believe. And yet people came to see this make-believe man who did nothing, really, to enhance the community or other people. But he was a popular celebrity and a figure that people just kind of, they noticed. There's another person that was noticed. Her name is Catherine Laws. Her husband had become the, the warden of Sing Sing Prison there in 1920. Prior to him, nobody lasted more than two years as the warden. 
He lasted 21. Part of the reasons is when he went to this infamous prison, and it was for some of the worst criminals here in, this re, in, the, in America, though when they went there, he implemented a variety of humanitarian efforts. His wife got deeply involved with the prisoners. She would make cakes. She would make treats. She would visit them. Frequently she would be found reading Bibles, holding Bible studies with a number of the prisoners. They got a prisoner in who was uh, blind. She went and learned Braille so she could teach him Braille so he could read. They got a prisoner who was a deaf mute. She went on her own, learned sign language so she could come back and communicate with that prisoner. She would do these things constantly. And then after a few years, all of a sudden, the news went through the prison through its own telegraph system that she had suddenly died in a tragic accident. The prisoners came to the warden and via some representatives, and they asked if they would be released from the prison for that day to go to his wife's funeral and pay respect. Hundreds of the prisoners were released. They marched out, they went down to the church, they surrounded the church where the service was, they filed past the casket. Not one of them attempted to escape on threat of the other prisoners that they would take care of their own if they showed any disrespect to Mrs. Catherine Laws. Here she was, a woman who really did make a difference, who in a small, insignificant way, she impacted and made a profound difference in people's lives for good and for God. <clears throat> Which one would describe your life right now? One where you are the dreamer, the celebrity, people know you, but you're really not making a real impact? Or somebody who is doing for the, the needy, doing for the forgotten, forsaken, and trying to minister for good and for God? If we were going to take examples from Scripture, we would run to the example of Elisha and say, he is a classic example that as he approached the end of his life, he was still focused on reaching and making an impact for good and for God upon many people's lives. The story in Second Kings is wrapping up Elisha's life. It's an interesting story that even in his last breaths, he is still thinking about ministering to others, ministering to others, not being a celebrity, not being one of notoriety, not being a make-believe individual, but somebody who did things to really make a difference in other people's lives. Now, let's set the scene for what's happening in chapter 13. He's been ministering for about 56 years. Ten of those years was when he was working as the servant of Elijah. And so what happens is he has served those 56 years, 46 soloing as the lead prophet. He has served under numbers of kings. Ahab, Ahab's two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoash, and then Yehu, who, who went and usurped and established his own dynasty, and his sons, his son and grandson. And so Elisha has had interaction. He's been the chaplain of the kings and of the leaders of the nation. And all of a sudden we read in chapter 13, verse 14, that he's fallen sick. An illness has come upon this man of God, this prophet of God, an illness that is going to take his life. We read in the text. 2 Kings chapter 13, now Elisha was fallen sick of, a, of his sickness, whereof he would die. And it goes on, and Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha says unto the king, take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he doesn't tell him to go out hunting. 
But what he says to him, he said unto the king, put your hand upon the bow, and he put his hand, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hand, opened the window eastward, and he opened it, and Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. And the arrow of the Lord, and then Elisha says, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you shall smite the Syrians in Aphek, till you have consumed them. Now, Here's Elisha, who is a man of God, who has done a lot of miracles. He's, he's been the one who has provided a, tr- some tremendous events and stories in the past, where he's raised the axe to float in the water, where he's in, increased the number of bread items to feed a hundred men, where he's been able to purge and heal foods that were providing sickness, where all of a sudden he's able to reveal the enemy troops Nobody else could, but he could tell where they were coming through. He even captures an entire army by himself, causing them to be blind and then restoring their sight. He's got miracle powers. And so this man with miracle powers, he also succumbs to the normal course of aging and of life and gets an illness. And he is sickly. And he is in his bed in his last days. Now, that doesn't mean that he's lost the power of God. In fact, if you read at the end of this chapter, it talks about that when he dies, his body is placed in some type of grave. And then sometime after that, there are several men whose friend has died. And those several men are looking for a place to bury their friend, and they come across the grave site where Elisha's body, and this wasn't unusual, if there's caves and different things of that sort, that they could put multiple people in that same grave site. So they come to this spot where Elisha's bones are, and at the moment that they're trying to bury their friend, they see some, I think it's Moabite, Moabite invaders coming towards them who are robbers, thieves, and it says that they need to get out of there in a hurry, so they drop the body. The body falls into the exact grave where Elisha's body, his bones are, and when that body hits the bones of Elisha, the man comes back to life. Now that would have surprised his friends. If all of a sudden, you know, you're burying and the guy stands up in the grave. And so Elisha is this man with this power of God upon him. Never loses it. But he goes through the normal, natural process of life that we do. And it's at this point that the king comes. And the king is in need of help and assistance. We've read about it already that the king is, he's burdened. He's upset. He's, he's going to see his friend, his advisor, his confidant, Elisha. And he's very upset. He's weeping, the passage says because he's been reliant upon Elisha. And though this king has, has not followed the Lord and, and been consistent, at this moment he is, he is really moved to turn to the Lord and move towards turning towards Elisha, the man of God. And Elisha ministers to him. In this text, it's just kind of unusual what happens. But Elisha encourages the king. Elisha challenges the king. Elisha, in his last, on his deathbed, is still trying to impact others for good and for God. Now, if I'm going to divide the message, I'm just going to bring it into a practical sense. There's three practical applications that Elisha makes towards the king or the king responds that have practical application to us in the same way of how we can be encouraged to do things for the Lord. Number one, we would look at it and say the same thing that Elisha told that king is true of us today. We need to believe in God's ability to help you with impossible situations. You need to believe in God's ability to help you with impossible situations. In this text, 
The king, Joash, he is facing impossible situations. He thinks that they are just beyond any human ability, and frankly they are, to be able to, to get things done right. Now set the scene. Go back in earlier in the chapter. It tells us about his dad. His, ja- his da- dad's name is Jehoash. His dad, who is the king, has died. He is succeeding his dad. And when he succeeds his dad, he not only gets the throne and gets the crown and gets all the treasury, he also gets all the trouble, all the difficulties, all the problems that come with it. Now, when Joash succeeds his dad, he's not starting off as a godly man. Look at the verse that talks about in verse 11. It talks about how he isn't one who is following the Lord with his whole heart. When he starts his kingdom, it says in verse 11, that as he starts his rule, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departs not from the sins of the first king of Israel, generations before Jeroboam. So he starts off as a young man, as the new king, and not doing right. He's not sold out to the Lord. He is a believer, if you would, a Jewish individual who's going to listen to the prophet, but he's not sold out on serving the Lord to the best of his ability. He also inherits from his dad conflicts with one of the neighboring nations. The conflict is with Hazael. Hazael, we've heard about the last two weeks. He's the king of a region that is north of Israel. He rules over a region that if you look in your Bible maps, it'll be either called Amram, A-M-R-A-M, or Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. And it's just north of, say Jerusalem is down there on the floor, then that's Judah. This is the area of Israel. Samaria is the capital. Just north of them is the area of Syria. And Syria is being led now in the past by Ben-Hadad. And he was killed by Hazael. And Hazael is really just anti-Jewish and creating a lot of problems. He's been attacking for 40 years. He's been a thorn in the flesh of, of Jehoash. Uh, Joash's father, and now Joash becomes king, and the enemy's still coming. Haziel is still invading. He's creating problems. In fact, as you read the passage, it says that in the past, when Haziel would attack, Jehoaz called unto the Lord, and he prayed to the Lord, God help me, I cannot handle this, these attacks anymore. And the passage says, it's interesting how it unfolds, if you look down on verse 4. Joash's dad was not a godly king, but when troubles came, Jehoaz, his dad, besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel because of the king of Syria, that's Hazael, and oppressed him. And look at verse 5. The Lord gave Israel a savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians. The savior that God sends to get rid of the attacks that are coming from the north, the savior is Assyria. Assyria is a major nation over here. And Assyria is going to play into a lot of the politics. And what God did is God moved the Assyrian king to attack Hazael. And Hazael, he was attacking going south. He gets attacked on the north. So no longer can he keep his army going after Israel. He has to put his army back to the backside to take care of the Assyrians. And therefore, Jehoaz and Israel, the the northern tribes, they get some relief. In this sense that God, through geopolitics, he gave them some relief when they were thinking they were going to be destroyed. But they were devastated. Hazael's army now is fighting further north, and he's left off. And it says that the Jews were able to go back into some of their tents, go back into some of their lands. 
because they weren't being marauded and they weren't being bombarded constantly, but they're still in trouble. And Hazael is still threatening them. And Hazael has still got them under the thumb, even when Jehoash becomes, uh, when Joash becomes the king. But look at the text. It says, and it gives you a little bit of the details, it says that um, <clears throat> in verse 7, that the people, I'm sorry, verse 5, that the people were able to go back and dwell in their, their tents, go back and just stop being fearful, come out of the mountains, come out of the caves. And then it talks about that the people that are returning, the Assyrians have let off the, the most immediate attacks, but they're, they're still living in fear of them. And the people don't repent. The people don't say, God has salvaged us, God has rescued us. Therefore, they're still going to have problems. They're still going to have difficulties. We were just talking, Pastor John and I were talking this week about car problems. And I was relaying my personal history. My personal history that one of the areas that I really had a besetting issue with was getting car problems. They would frustrate me and they would really overcome. And until I came to a point in my life that said, Lord, you know, I got got to stop getting so upset about car problems. It was only after I finally stopped and said, Lord, help me to just overcome this frustration with car difficulties and getting so cranky over them that they let up. It's like God keeps us into a school where we still have these same problems, 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 until we learn how to handle them right. Well, the Jews don't repent, and so they got a relief from a little bit of their car problems, being Hazael's army, but they don't repent. They go back to their homes, but they don't repent. So you know Hazael's coming back. God's going to send them again. And it talks about how God has, or how Hazael is such a threat to them, and and Joash is fearful now that his dad is gone, that they're going to come any moment. And what's he got left? Look at the text. It says that he's got 10 chariots, he's got 50 cavalry officers, and he's got 10,000 foot soldiers. In Bible days, that's a pitiful army. He's without defense. There is nobody. There's, he is in an impossible situation. If Hazael comes, he's going to right away walk right over him once again. He's going he's to force the people out of their tents. They're going to run to the hills once again. He's going to invade Samaria like he threatened in the past. Remember, we read about last week that he was at- attacking the city and there was that great famine that struck the city. That was Hazael. That was those, those armies. They have devastated the Jewish people. And Joe, Joe Ashes, he's, he's, he's beside himself. This is just an impossible situation. How am I going to defend my people? How am I going to take care of those folk? And then, he, then on top of it, all of a sudden, he hears and gets the message that the man of God, the one man of God that he's been able to go to all this past, his dad went to, the previous kings went to, The one person that would bail them out. The one person that captured the enemy armies. The one who delivered them. He's dying. So he goes to see that man. He knows that he is a man of God. He knows that he has been been helpful. In fact, when he comes to see him, he is so forlorn. And he's, he's so reliant upon the man of God. It's amazing how in the middle of crisis people turn to the Lord. Here in his crises, he turns to the Lord and says, My father, my father, speaking about Elisha. I need you. I need you. You're somebody that I can't do without. You've been my guide. You've been my provider. And then he calls Elisha the chariot of Israel, the horseman thereof. You are the protector. God through you have been the protector of us all these years. And Joash is recognizing it's the man of God, it's the work of God that has kept them where they're at, where they haven't been more devastated. It's the hand of God that has moved Hazael's army away and taken them to defend their own lands farther north. 
And yet he's looking and saying, what are we going to do in the future? I'm going to lose you. We're going to lose the defender of Israel. What am I going to do? What's our hope? What are we going? It's an impossible situation for Joash. And he's saying, you know, basically like you and I would say, what else can go wrong? This is so incredibly, incredibly bad where everything is just, we're walking on eggshells and it looks like any day we're going to be attacked. And the one person that could help us out, he's dying. And Elisha basically is saying to him, you need to trust in the Lord. You need to continue to rely upon the Lord. Not me, but upon the Lord. And through just a a weird way of doing it, he tells him, take the bow, take the arrow, open the window, and shoot towards the enemies. And this is how God is going to deliver you. You will destroy that enemy. You will defeat him. If you believe, he laid his hands on him as if to say, you are the one that God is going to use. I'm passing on my protectorship to you. If you believe, if you trust, shoot that arrow. And God will help you. King, don't become distraught. Believe that God will help you. He's, you're his people. You are, you are his chosen. He's going to defend. He's going to protect. He's going to spank at times. But he can help you through the impossible situation. Name your impossible situation. What is it? What is it right now that you face? Is it an impossible situation that you say, I've got some besetting sin. I've got some addiction. That it's just, it's assaulted me. It's left me devastated. The guilt and the, and the lack of peace in my heart that I just see, don't seem to get over that temper or that lust or that greed or that gossip. And every time I take two steps forward, I feel like I go ten steps backwards. And it seems like it's impossible that I'm ever going to overcome it. Maybe your impossible situation is finances. You say, I can't get out from under this debt. It seems that as soon as we we get a little bit ahead, all of a sudden, another difficulty, another breakdown, another bill shows up, and it seems like we never move forward. Maybe your impossibility is finding some peace with a neighbor or co-worker. It could be somebody who is uh, verbally attacking you. They are criticizing you. They They are tearing you down. They are saying things that are untrue about you. They're treating you in a rude sense. In a, in, they're, they're bullying you. And you've tried. You've tried to be nice to them. And when you, when you drive down the road and see them, you're tempted to just kind of let that car go by itself. And you say, but I can't do that. But it is just so frustrating. And it's just, it's robbing me of my peace. Maybe you're, maybe you're overcoming insurmountable situations of loneliness. You buried your spouse. Last year, you, you said goodbye to a parent, a grandparent, somebody you loved, you were close to. And this Christmas season, instead of the joy, you're hearing when the bells ring and when the sounds of the ding-a-ling, it comes to your mind, that person, and the loneliness just seems to overcome you. The grief doesn't go away. Maybe, maybe your affliction is that you think it's impossible that some of your relatives that you've prayed about, that you've been trying to invite to hear, the, to hear about Jesus Christ, and they've been, <clears throat> they've been somewhat antagonistic to your witness. And you say, I don't know if they'll ever get saved. And you fear for them because you don't want them to end up in hell for all eternity. You fear that, that they might, their life might end and they won't get born again, and you pray and you pray and you plead. And they're still not saved. 
and it just breaks your heart. Maybe your impossible situation is your marriage. Everybody here looks and thinks everything's okay, but in your home, you know that things aren't right. You know that that relationship is one of endurance. There is not enthusiasm. There is not enjoyment. And you're just going and you're just plugging away, marking the days on the calendar and saying something's got to change one day. Something's going to change one day. But you don't feel like there's any hope of anything changing. Maybe your impossible situation is overcoming your own fear to share Christ. We preach it. You read it. You know it. You've been convicted by the Spirit. But again this week, when you had an opportunity to share your faith about Christ, you wilted. You wimped out. You feel guilty as guilty can be this Christmas season that you have yet to share the gospel. Maybe you say, my impossible situation is, I want to make a difference upon my class. I want, to, I want to influence others. But it seems like every time I try to stand for Christ, they make fun of me. And it's just like we don't seem to get forward and move closer. Maybe it's the trials. It's the struggles that you face, whether it be health or whether it be kids or whether it be parents. And you just, being steadfast, that's not you. Being cranky, that's you. You don't want to be grumpy. You don't want to be miserable. You don't want to be angry to the Lord, but it's a battle. And you come and you sing, but you know in your heart, man, are days I even question God. And it's a struggle, it's a battle, or maybe it's, you're one of those that you just worry. You can't get victory to say just trust the Lord, and it is devastating in your life. Whatever those trials are, he is saying from this text, as he's dying on his deathbed, the man of God is saying to the ones he's leaving behind, the king who is facing an impossible situation, trust the Lord. Believe the Lord can give you a victory. Should I give you the most impossible situation? How are you going to make it to heaven? How are you going to get forgiveness of your sins? How are you going to be good enough to earn your way to heaven? Now that's an impossibility. How do I know that one day when, the, when this life ends, where am I going to be spending eternity? The Lord can help you with that impossible situation. He has already died. He has given his life. He has provided a free gift of salvation. All you need to do is call upon him. All you need to do is believe that he would give you forgiveness because he paid for forgiveness on the cross of Calvary and rose again. This morning we had the most exciting news right before the service. Our granddaughter thought this was impossible. Five years old. But I thought it was impossible that she would ever understand. But she did last night and got saved. Even a child can believe in the Lord and the Lord can give the help when we need in an impossible situation. What is your impossible situation? Child of God, you who have already been born again, list it out. This is what I feel is impossible. Believe that the Lord is desirous to help you out. Joash, believe God. God, yes, he's using this to try to get you to grow and grow in faith, but he's going to help you. He's going to give you assistance. Can I add something to that? To just move you a step further? Not only believe that God is willing and wanting to help you with impossible situations, increase. Increase your vision and request beyond your initial response. 
What I mean by that is this. In this story, as we unfold, Joash shot the arrow. He faced it towards that that eastern spot. He shot the arrow towards the, the Syrians that were northeast of him. And then the prophet is content with that, but the prophet tells him to do something else. What this is, we don't fully understand because we don't understand that culture fully. But there was something there, something stated, and we hear the results. Look what happens. Verse 18. He said, that is the prophet, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king, smite upon the ground. And he smote three times. Now there's two possibilities. The Hebrew is not clear. Could he have taken the arrows and banged them on the ground like this? That's a possibility. The other possibility is that he took the arrows and he shot them against the ground. That's the other possibility. I don't know which one it is and neither do you. But whatever it is, he said, take the arrows and strike. There had been some form of communication between them. There was some message between them that we don't know. We just know that what the king does is he takes and he shoots or strikes three times. And as soon as he does just three times, the prophet is irate. The passage says that the prophet, then all of a sudden, the prophet, he ends up in the text, that the, verse 19, the man of God was wroth with him, was angry with him for his lack of faith. What it is, is what's involved here, is that the, the prophet was saying, you're going to win. You're going to win. Now, the, the number of victories... The number of, of conquests you'll have is going to depend upon how many arrows you shoot or strike to the ground. And the king just took three and shot three. And the prophet immediately says, why didn't you do more? Why, why did you stop with just three? You should, have, you should have, by faith, asked for more so you could totally obliterate this threat against you. You hesitated. You didn't show faith. You, you had an opportunity for a request, but you asked for basically just the minimum. Why didn't you ask for a maximum? Why didn't you believe in more, that God was willing to do more than what you just thought? Why don't you increase your request? Why didn't you, why didn't you shoot more arrows? Why didn't you take and say, I'm going to take a whole quiver, and I'm going to believe that God can give me victory after victory after victory after victory? Maybe it's because he's guilty. Maybe he thought he didn't deserve any more. We've already read that in this text that when he became the king, he wasn't a godly man. He wasn't sold out to the Lord. And so maybe at this point he's saying, I don't deserve more than, and so I'll just take the, a, a minimum of three. You know how some people do today who come to church and they say, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm trusting the Lord to help me out in my home. But in the back of their mind, they're saying, uh, you know, I feel guilty over things that I used to do. What can I expect from God? I, I used to do things that, are, that offended the Lord. And I've got some things in my background, so I'm not sure that God can really bless me. You know, I, I, I'll, get the, I'll get the minimum of blessings, but could God really, really use me? Could God really, really let me have, make a major impact? I, I don't know, because I had some sin in my past. Maybe it's his guilt. Maybe it's his moderate vision. Maybe it's because he's, he's just satisfied with just a, a simple one or two victories. He's not interested in, in totally wiping out, totally getting everything he could out of this. Maybe he's like, he's like the parent who comes to worship, 
who says, you know, yeah, yeah, we've got kids and I'm praying for my kids and I'm just perfectly content that my kids don't do drugs and don't do drink and, and they're good kids. Where God is saying, wait a minute, why don't you strive for godly kids? Why don't you strive for, the, for kids who are really sold out to the Lord, but you're just content, you're happy that at least your kids aren't embarrassing you too much by their lifestyle. Or maybe it's like the couple who comes to worship and they stopped working on their marriage. Well, we're not divorcing. Yeah, we're going to stay together. But they are no longer striving in faith and in belief that they could have an exceptional marriage. That they could really grow. They could go further than what they've done. Maybe it's like, it's like the Christian who comes to church who hears the challenge that we give about sharing the gospel and reaching out. And you say, well, I gave out the gospel once this year. You know, and I'll be perfectly content with just giving it out once. Because if, you know, if I get just one person the gospel, you know, I guess that's good enough. Where Jesus said what we're supposed to be doing is reaching how far? The whole world? Or, or maybe it's like, it's like the Christian says, well, I'm just, I'm just trusting the Lord to take care of my financial needs and just to get me by. And so I'm praying that he gets me by, but I'm not praying that he blesses me even more so I can be more charitable to others in need. Now, before you respond and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, are, you, are you talking prosperity gospel? I want to remind you something. That what he was encouraged to do was clearly revealed by the prophet. He was clearly encouraged, claim more victory by the number of strikes you make. It's going to be at your disposal. God wants to bless, but you just need to increase the amount of vision, the amount of requests that you are making, and not be content with just getting by. Not just having a simple lack of faith that, wait a minute, could God really use me to reach dozens for Christ? Could God really use me as a parent to make a generational difference by raising all my kids to serve the Lord? That God could really use us, that we could have an outstanding marriage and not just be content and plot along on the years? The answer is yes. Because all of those are found in the Word of God. All of those are given in the Word of God that you're supposed to be striving, you're supposed to be stretching to not just walk a little bit on the water, but Jesus was disappointed that he didn't keep on walking in the water. So many times we get caught up. We stop. We say, well, that's the best we've done. We can't grow anymore. We've had good days in the past. So we'll just, let's just kind of plug it out the next few years until we're taken to heaven and the text is challenging us. It says, one, believe that God will help you with what is impossible. Increase your vision and request from your initial response. Do more. Strive for more. Pray for more. Ask God for more of what he has said in his word. He wants to bless you. There are some people who need to realize that we need to expand our vision and our faith and saying, God, do more than what we expect. We should be approaching this reenactment and saying, God, do more than what we've seen in the past. 
God, as a teacher in Sunday school, help me to make a bigger impact upon the kids. God, I've got experience. Help me to influence others for Christ. Not to just keep it and be content, but strive to do more for the Lord Jesus Christ. What about you? What is your vision? What are your requests? Are you saying, I'm asking God for more of what he wants in his word, what he promises in his word, where he wants me to be a light, a salt in the classroom? He wants me to make a difference amongst my classmates. He wants me to make a difference at my workplace. There are some people who aren't even born again, who have vision, who have goals, who are not deterred, and they make a huge impact. We think of some of these individuals that we know from society. You ever see this guy before? I mean, there's Rocky 300 already, so you've seen it somewhere. Do you remember how he started off? When he was a young man, he was, when he was born, there was a problem when he was birthed, and so there was a nerve that was severed. And as a result, he had that, that facial problem that all of a sudden he couldn't smile quite the way, and he has a little bit of slurred speech. When he was in high school, he was selected by his classmates, the most likely to be executed in the chair because of his rough background, going from home to home and foster home. He's a young man, gets married. He graduated, you know, he's out of high school. He goes to beauty school. Can you imagine Rocky being, doing your cosmetics? He goes to beauty school and he bombs out. He really wants to be an actor. So he's got to work in delis. Does this sound familiar? That he's working in a meat camp company and he's working in a deli? Just to get by. He gets so broke at one point that he sells his dog for 25 bucks and he lives inside a bus stop on the main street. He really wants to be an actor, and he ends up, he sees a fight that Muhammad Ali has with a Kempton Kempter that took Ali all the way to the 15th round. Rocky was inspired. I'm sorry, Sylvester Stallone was inspired. He went home, and in three days, he wrote the script for the original Rocky movie. He took it, contacted a couple different studio people through some friends, and they offered to buy it from him. But he wouldn't sell it because he said part of the deal was, I'll give you my script if I'm the main actor. And nobody knew him. He was a nobody. And so they didn't want to do it. They offered him $325,000 for the script, the highest that any studio would pay for a script up to that point. And he had $106 in his pocket. He refused the money. He was determined that this was going to be his baby. He was going to follow it through. And so they finally come to a deal where he gets $32,000. He gets the main part. He works for a lot of the extra fees for nothing. But all of a sudden, is Rocky a hit? Yeah, yeah. Is he famous because of it? He had this determination to do more than what was expected of him. That happens even to lost people. Too bad it doesn't happen amongst Christians. There's a couple of these people who have made a difference. 1977, IBM put out a statement that in America there is no need to have any computer in the home and it will never sell. This is IBM putting it out. And they said that the most we need in any city is five computers to run things. There was two guys who had a different vision. You've heard of them before. Okay, Steve Jobs, Wozniak. They thought that they could get these computers down to small devices and that if they could sell it, they could get it to that most every Americans would want one in their home. 
they, they came up with a device. They took it to Texas Instruments, wanted nothing to do with it, thought it was a flop. They went to Atari Systems. Atari said, nothing doing, this is a flop. Nobody will want a home computer system. So uh, Jobs sold his Volkswagen, took the $1,300 and started the business in their own garage. And then they started just working at it, working at it, and they started selling things. They knew that they needed somebody with better vision and better marketing ability, so they went and contacted a fella by the name of John Scully. John Scully at this time was CEO of Pepsi-Cola and of all of its advertising departments. So Steve Jobs came and offered him a pittance pay to come and work for Jobs, work for Wozniak and Jobs to help develop this new industry. Well, Scully wanted nothing to do with it. But Jobs was determined. He saw him once, twice, three times, and the fourth time that he cornered him at some type of a convention system. He had a conversation with him, and history says this was the conversation that changed uh, Scully's mind, and he came to work for him, and then everything took off. He, they were having a conversation, and Jobs looked at him and said, Listen, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? You can make money, but you won't make a difference. You come work for us, and you can make a real difference in society as a whole, much more than selling sugar water. And he came, joined them, and then you know, you've heard the story. They've, they've been semi-successful. Okay. Why? Why? Persistence? Why? Vision? Why that idea of... You know, can, I, can I rephrase it? Are you satisfied with sugar water? Or do you want to make a difference? There is a character from Scripture that we read about in Chronicles. His name is Jabez. He's a man that lives during the period of the judges, and you read up on the wall what he prays. His mom named him Sorrow because she was having sorrow with all of her lifestyle at the time that he was born. And so he comes from this dysfunctional background, but he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, help me. Lord, I want you to expand my influence, broaden my coast, my territories. Help me to do not remember. This is the book of Judges. This is when you're going in and you have to conquer the territory from the enemy. God, help me to conquer, to conquer, to conquer. Help me to do more than what the other Jews are doing. Help me to do more than, than just be content with my little plot. Help me to claim what you have told me to claim, the promised land. Expand my boundaries and keep me to be a holy man. Keep me from evil so that the evil doesn't harm me. So here he is praying what God wanted him to do, to expand the territory at that moment, to be a godly people, a holy nation. And God blessed him. Despite his circumstances, despite his, his background, he's saying, I want to do more for God than what I've done. He goes to the Lord and he says, God, guide me every day. In the Hebrew, it's the idea of constantly, constantly. Guide my everyday step. And he seeks God's protection for holiness in his life. And the Bible talks about how this man who wanted to do more, he wanted to make a bigger impact for God Almighty. The passage, his story ends with this phrase, and God granted what he requested. My question to you is this. Are you requesting more of the Lord? Have you, from where you were a year ago, have you increased your vision? 
Have you increased your request and said, Lord, I want more than what I think I could have in your blessings in my life. I want to have more of a ministry than what I did last year. I want to have a greater impact upon lost people than what I did last year. I don't want to be content with what I used to do. I want to do more for you now to the point that you are praying more. To the point that you are pleading and praying for more souls by name of co-workers and family and friend. To the point that you are saying, I am, I am wanting my kids to be godly. I'm not just saying, God, thank you that my kids aren't doing drugs. God, help them to be sold out to you. To love you with all of their hearts and you're pleading for it. And you're begging for it. And you're, and you're not just satisfied with good kids or grandkids, but you're striving to say, God, I am going to be that grandparent that is going to fast and pray for my grandkids on a weekly basis. Because I want more for their life. I want what you want. Are you the type of person who is praying and fasting and pleading with God that your marriage becomes better? Instead of just we're, we're notching the ears. No, I, I want this to improve. I want this to, to really make a difference in my generations. I want this to make a difference in my life. I want us to be an example to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our relatives. <coughs> have, have, have you asked the Lord to increase your opportunity to minister? Or have you retired from all ministry? Because you've done enough? Or are you going to the Lord and say, Lord, where can I serve you this year? Instead of taking off, what can I do more for you? How can I, how can I really make a difference at my workplace for all eternity? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're good. People like you. They love you. Do they know your Christ? Have you been a blazing light? Are you salt that is rubbed into the very fabric of your workplace to the point that it is making a difference? Not just a celebrity, but one who is really going to leave a mark on your society, on your community, for good and for God. Yeah. You want to be a good teacher. At the school, here, but are you praying, God, help me to become a better teacher? God, help me, to be a, help me to be a pastor that is even doing more than just following the schedule that I've been following for whatever length of time. Help me to do more when I preach. Help me to do more when I witness. Help me to do more for the glory of God and the good of the congregation. Help me to become more pure than what I've been. God, help me to be an individual that my language is improving, that my attitude is improving, that my, my conduct and my relationships with others is improving to be more godly, more righteous, more gracious, more Christ-like. That's the increase of a vision. That's the increase of requests. Have you done it? Are you willing to say, I'm going to do more than just boom, 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 I want a lot of blessings, God. I want a lot of blessings this year. And again, I remind you, I'm not preaching with that idea of, of you know, just, you know, get rich quick seems. This was the will and the word of the Lord to him. In every application I have made, it is the will and the word of the Lord to you without 
being silly, without being mystical. It is you asking God for greater impact, greater godliness, greater influence, greater opportunities to minister. Increase your vision and prayers from your initial response to your trials and troubles. Ask for more. Strive for more. And then let's do the third thing that's in this text. Believe, not only believe in God's ability to help you, not only increase your vision and your requests, but then I'll give you a third application out of the text. It is this. Do your part. Do your part in bringing about the increased blessings. You go to the very last few verses of the chapter. Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad and son of Haziel the cities, which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz, his father. He beat him three times because that's all he asked for, but he got it. The point is, he had to go to battle. He had to do his part. It just didn't happen. The blessings just didn't show up. He had to invest. He had to take what miserable number of troops he had and by faith go out and fight the battle. And God gave him the victory. Three times because that's what he settled for. But God gave him the victory. He had to do his part. Can, can we bring it back to where we just said? What do you do? You want to see people, more people saved? You've got to do more inviting. You've got to do more. You've got to speak. You've got to give out tracts. You, you want to see your kids really become godly? then you need to demonstrate it. You need to talk about it. You need to insist that they do godly things. You, you want to see your marriage really grow? You not only pray about it, but you become the person you're supposed to be. You do your part. The, the parts that we've been talking about on Sunday nights and we'll pick up in January again. You want to see the church prosper? You want to see ministry and outreach? Then you do your part in serving. You get involved. You, you want to make an impact on the next generation? Offer to teach. Then go home and study. And study and do a good job. And don't come with something that is just phenomenal and mystical and magical and kind of just you know, tickles the ears. You come and you teach the Word of God. And you teach the Word of God. And you don't have to do something dynamic and dramatic, but you teach the Word of God. You, you, want, you want to make an impact upon your classmates? then you be an example of godliness in the classroom. You don't have to be the class clown. You don't have to be the one that is the showboating. You don't have to be the celebrity claiming to be the emperor of the classroom. You actually do something. You minister. And if it means minister to somebody else by learning something like the Braille, by learning something like sign language, going out of your way to help, that's what you do. You actually do stuff. You want more purity in your life? Get away from the people and the places that pull you back. Turn off some of the garbage that you watch that is dragging you down. Stop engaging in the language and in the stuff that just brings to your mind areas that you struggle with. Become pure. Put on purity. Put off the, the impurities. You, you want to become more solid as a Christian? Then you remain stable. You remain a steady eddy when the trials and the troubles come. You bucket up and you say, God, by your grace, help me. And you be faithful. You don't become fickle. You don't become angry. You remain faithful through prayer, through vision, and doing what is right. You do your part. And let God work a great work. There's the true story, George Mallory. You've probably heard about him. He was one of those first people that wanted to conquer Mount Everest. In the 1920s to 1924, he was an individual that led multiple expeditions with groups of people to try to get. They never made it. 
In fact, on his final expedition, he never came down from the mountain. And that was in 1923 or 1924 that he died on the mountain. They found his body still frozen in place in 1999 in a stretch of ice. Still, they said what was amazing is he was still reaching towards the top. You could tell that he was, his hand was up with the pickaxe, and even as he died, he was still stretching. Well, back in 1924, 25, those people who tried it the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, and didn't make it, and they left you know, Mallory and others there on the mountain, they got together for a banquet the next year. And according to this banquet, the, the record, they're at this banquet hall, and on the back wall, right behind the main table in Diaz, there was this huge picture of Mount Everest. The main speaker had his, his address that evening, and as he closed, he made a comment that is just a striking comment. He turned and looked at the picture of Mount Everest, and he spoke to it as if it was a personality. He said, Mount Everest, you have beaten us once. You have beaten us twice in our expeditions. You have beaten us and taken some of the lives of our friends on the third, and our latest, the fourth expedition, you have beaten us. But we are going to beat you. We will conquer you because you can't get any bigger, but we can. Can I ask you a question? What will you get bigger for God? In what way will you grow bigger this week for God? What will you say is your Mount Everest that you say, I'm going to become bigger than that through the power of God? Through prayer, through vision, through doing what you're supposed to do, what will you do? It starts by believing in God's help, that he wants the conquering of God's people to conquer. By believing that God will work this way, you increase your vision. Practically, you increase your prayer. You increase your vision in some way, some form, some step that you take. And then you act upon it. You actually do something to do your part so God can do his part. Hey, maybe it is. Invite more people. Have them to your house. Have a party and invite the neighbors. And watch what God can do with those neighbors. Give out tracts. Go downtown. Hand out 700 of the flyers. Say that you are going to get some things out of your life and take a stand before your kids and say, we're going to remove this. We're going to, we're going to put something, some real controls on what we say and what we do here. We're going to work in our marriage. We are actually going to sit down and talk and make some real valid commitments to each other on how we can improve this. I'm going to reach my classmates and I'm going to get together with a couple other teens and we're going to start praying. And we're going to get together on a weekly basis and we're going to pray before church for us at school. We're going to put some feet. We're going to increase our vision. We're going to do something more. It's called having a tender heart before the Lord. It is a prayer that we sing, that we say, Lord, use me. Lord, make a difference with me, through me. Use me. Some way, some form. I would invite you this morning that you would join me in praying to the Lord. If this is your heart, God, increase my vision. God, make me bigger so I can do more for good God. If you're not serious, then don't sing. Don't pray. Don't show. Don't be a, don't be a, a Norton that is just a celebrity. Be like that Catherine Laws where you really want to make a difference.